Do you ever think about time? Do you ever think about the fact that time is simply dying? That every moment fades away? You know, the mistake many people make is they think they're going to live forever. It's not true. How much longer do you really think you're going to live? Now, I don't want to depress you. I simply want you to experience the power of time. The power you've been given to use time. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is how are we using our time? Are you using your time to become, to grow, to develop yourself? Now, why am I starting out with this? Earlier today, I was giving a shear. I was giving a shear on purpose and the purpose of life and the power of time. And right after the shear, a person came over to me and really said something powerful. She almost had tears in her eyes as she looked at me and said, Thank you. Thank you so much for telling me that. I can't tell you how happy I am that I heard that now in my life as opposed to when I was much older. Imagine I heard that message, that idea, when I was 70 years old, when I didn't have a lot of time left. Now the truth is, we don't know how much time we have left. But the reason I want to start out this year like this is because there are so many things in life that are so important that we don't think about enough. That we don't contemplate and realize the importance of it. So one of them is time, the power of time. But what I want to talk about today is another fundamental topic, which is the nature of ownership. What is the nature of ownership? What is the relationship between you and your things, all the things that you own? How are we supposed to understand the deeper meaning behind ownership? So as we always do, let's start out with a number of important questions. The first question which I'd like to discuss is the nature of kinyanim. How do kinyanim work? This really enters into the entire topic of Chosha Mishpat, but when we want to understand ownership, a large category of ownership is how to understand changing ownership, kinyanim. So for example, there's a whole category of creating ownership. For example, Hadba, Meshicha, Chazaka, Chalipin, Kinyutsuner, Situmta, Matana. These are all ways that you can build ownership. Now the question is, what's the nature of these kinyanim of building ownership? Now, there are also kinyanim which break ownership. So, for example, being mafkir something, hefkir, or siluk, removing yourself from an object, or mechila, being mochel something. Now, the question is, what's the nature of breaking ownership? And also, we can take this a step further, how does hefkir, and hefkir work? Why can basin just decide to disconnect you from your object? How can they break your ownership? It's your ownership. And to take the question a step further, why is Kedushin considered to be a Kenyan? We're talking about a relationship between a man and wife, marriage. Yet why in Halacha do we compare that to a Kenyan? If you read Mesechah Kedushin, or if you learn the Rabbim Hilchasishus, Kedushin is compared to a Kenyan, yet this is a relationship. Why is that called a Kenyan? And it's also just interesting to consider and ponder. There are certain levels of ownership where you have this kind of semi-ownership. So, for example, a gazela. If you're a guy and you stole something, there seems to be this middle ground of partial ownership. There are things that you can't do at that level of ownership. The question is, can you be makdish, something that you stole? Can you be makadish? Can you marry with something that you stole? Can you fulfill lachem? You have to own a lulav and asurgan sukkas. Can you fulfill lachem when you stole something? Or let's say you found something in Aveda. Or let's say you're a shomer. These are levels of partial ownership. How much do you own these things? These are all important questions. To take it a step further, what about a chamsan? 
the Gemara talks about a person who forces you to sell him something, puts a gun to your head and says, give me your object or I'll kill you. Now he pays you for it, but he's forcing it. Is that considered to be a gav? At the end of the day, he did pay you, but he forced you. Now the question is, what's the nature of ownership? What's the nature of stealing? Does this fall into the category of stealing? Now these are all very important questions when it comes to kinyanim. But now let's take the questions a step further. What is the relationship between you and your things? There's some very strange halachos when it comes to the relationship between you and your things. For example, there seems to be a debate in Shas whether or not you're allowed to steal in order to save your life. Now at first glance, it should be obvious that you should be allowed to steal in order to save your life. Why? Well, the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Daf Ayin Dalet as well as the Gemara in Psachim, Daf Chav Hei as well as many other Gemaras, including Yoma, says that there are only three things that you're not allowed to do in order to save your life. Avodah Zarah, Gilirais, and Shvichos Idolatry, illicit relationships, and murder. But stealing doesn't fall on that list. Stealing is definitely not Avodah Zarah, it's definitely not Gilirais, and how can you say it's murder? So the question is, why wouldn't you be allowed to steal in order to save your life? It doesn't seem to make any sense. That's the question. There are Gemaras throughout Shas, including Baba Kama Daf Samech, including Baba Kama Daf Pei, including Ksubis Daf Yutes, including many other Gemaras that seem to imply that you cannot steal in order to save your life. But one second, stealing doesn't fit into those three. So why wouldn't you be allowed to steal in order to save your life? What's going on here? You're supposed to live by them, and so you're not supposed to die by them. So why, according to these opinions, to some opinions in the Gemara, are you seemingly not allowed to steal in order to save your life? The second question is regarding niske mamon, damaging with your property. Meseches Babakama largely deals with nizikin. At least the first six prakim are dealing with niske mamon and nizikin, when you damage something. Now the question is, what happens if your property damages? So not that you damage someone's property, but let's say your animal, your shore, your bull, let's say your animal damaged someone, gored him, attacked him, whatever it was. The Gemara says that you are chayev, you're chayev to pay. And the big debate in the Rishonim is why are you chayev to pay if your property damages? And according to some, you are chayev simply because you are responsible. You own the bull, you own your property, so you have to pay when your property damages. But according to some, when your property damages, it's as if you damaged. Pshia, it's almost as if you yourself were the one damaging. Now the question is, how does this make any sense? If your animal damages, your animal damages. You might be responsible, you might be chayev to pay, but how can we say it's as if you yourself damaged? You're not your animal. So what's going on here? And to take the question a step further, let's talk about Karbanos. We know the famous Ramban Alatora, who says that the reason you bring a carbon Chatas is because really you should be on the Mizbeach. Really when you bring a carbon Chatas, you should be the one saying that I should be on the Mizbeach. I really should be Chayv Misa. However, Hashem gave me a Matana, a gift, that I can bring my animal as a carbon instead of me and that my animal will serve as a kapara for my sin, for what I did. Now the obvious question is, how in the world is my animal going to be a kapara for me? I did the sin. So why is my property, why is my animal going to serve as a representation of me? It's not me. So what's going on here? Why is the animal, in all these cases, considered to be somehow an extension of me? It's not me. 
Now the last question we'll ask is regarding risking your life for your things, for objects, for your money. The Gemara in Sanhedrin, Daf Ayin Dalam Aleph, says that we have the pas bechol nafshecha, bechol modecha, to teach us two things. Bechol nafshecha, with all your soul, teaches us that sometimes you have to even give up your life for a Kodesh Baruch Hu. That when it comes to the big three that we mentioned, Avodah Zarek, Gilei Reis, and Shvich Hasdamim, that you have to give up your life. Now if you want to hear a whole shir on why you have to give up your life, there's a whole separate shir I gave on this in the Medical Halacha Chabura series, which is the sixth shir, which talks about the big three, giving up your life to the big three, and why you do it, which gives you a much deeper understanding of that topic. But you have to give up your life for those three Averos. But the Gemara goes on to say that we also have V'chom Odecha. Why do you have V'chom Odecha? To teach us that you even have to give all your money for those Averos as well. And the Gemara says that for people who value their money more than their lives, you need this saying. That not only do you have to give up your life for these three of yours, but you even have to give up your money. Now, the simple understanding is that this is referring to Rishayim, to people who are fools, who value their money more than their lives. And only such people would need this halacha telling them that they even have to give up their money. But the question is, we have a story in Tanakh, we have a story in the Chumash, of Yaakov Avinu seemingly risking his life for meaningless vessels, for pachim ketanim. The Torah tells us that Yaakov Avinu risked his life, went back at night alone, in order to get his pachim ketanim. Now seemingly Yaakov is risking his life for pachim ketanim, for small little vessels, for little tchotchkes, for money, for his property. What's going on here? Uvchomodecha seems to be referring to Rishayim. Now granted, Yaakov is not giving up his life, but he's definitely risking his life. So what's going on here? Now these are the introductory questions. The first question is, what's the nature of ownership? The second question is, what's the nature of Kinyanim? The third question is, what's the nature of the relationship between you and your things? Why in so many cases does the Gemara seem to refer as your things as somehow connected to you, as almost if it's like you? And the last question is, why would Yaakov Vinu risk his life for his things, for his Pachim Ketanim? It doesn't make any sense. Those are the questions. Now let's start with the first question. What's the nature of ownership? You ever ask yourself that? Why do you own what you own? For example, why can't I go over to you now and take off the shirt that you're wearing? Why is that your shirt? Why is it your car? Why is it your house? Why is what you own considered to be yours? Ever ask yourself that question? What's the nature of ownership? Why do I have a right to my things? Why can't you take my things? So this is a fascinating topic, and let's approach it properly and slowly. Let's develop it like this. There are three real approaches to ownership. The first approach to ownership and why you own what you own is that ownership is based on control. Ownership is based on power and the ability to maintain control over your things. So for example, let's say 3,000 years ago, why do you own your piece of land in your house? Because you can control it. You can prevent people from taking it. But what's the fundamental principle of this form of ownership? Ownership isn't actually real. It doesn't actually exist. You own what you have simply because you can control it. You can destroy it, you can use it, you can give it away. But because you can control it, you own it. So according to this, if you can maintain control over your things, you can own it. If you can take something by force and power, you can own it. Because according to this form of ownership, ownership is simply what you can control. 
what you can control based on your power and might. In other words, this is the system of the animal world. This is the system of survival of the fittest. Whoever is strong, whoever is capable of maintaining control and ownership, will maintain his things. If you're not strong, if someone can take it from you, they have a right to it because they now have control. Basically, this system says that whoever is stronger, whoever can control what they own, will maintain ownership. Now, what's the practical problem with this? Society can't function that way. This is basically a system of survival of the fittest. And according to this, most people will have nothing and they won't be able to survive. So the problem with this practically is that you can't have a functioning society where people can just take whatever they want and whoever can control it, whoever has the most power, will have control and ownership over everything else. So the second form of ownership, which is really a response to this first form of control, the second form of ownership is a societal agreement. Where ownership doesn't exist, we know that. Nothing is really anyone's. Things don't belong to you. It's really just because you control it. It's very practical. But therefore, there's a societal agreement of ownership. In order for society to function properly, you can't take other people's things. You earn what you earn, you pay for what you own, and it's yours. Because otherwise, the entire world would be chaotic. Society wouldn't function. Nothing would get done. No one would work. Everyone would simply try taking and stealing from everyone else. So the societal agreement is that we agree that you own what you own. Objectively, there's no real thing of ownership. There's no real concept of ownership. It doesn't really exist. But we agree that you own what you own in order that society can function. So another example of this concept would be the value of money in bills. I mean, if you just think about it for a moment, you realize that a dollar is objectively worthless. It has no objective value. It can't eat with money. It can't do anything with money. And it has no real value. But we agree, based on a societal agreement, that this bill, if it says one, it's worth a lot less than if it says a hundred. And if it says a hundred, you can buy a lot of things with that. Why? That's the system that we agree to. It's how our economy is able to function. But there's no objective value to money. It's something that we decide has value. Now, the problem with this, and it's really based off the problem of the first principle of ownership, is that there's no real objective ownership. You don't really own what you own. It's just a societal agreement. In order for our society to function, there's something called ownership. But according to this, stealing isn't wrong. It's fascinating if you think about a mindset of someone who says, I simply don't want to be part of your society. According to your societal rules, if you want to be part of the society, you can't steal. Because the society can't function if everyone's stealing. But according to that, if someone says, I don't want to be part of your society, then in his eyes, stealing is no longer wrong. Because ownership isn't real. If you don't want to be part of that society, the rules don't apply to you. So in a robber's mindset, he doesn't feel like he's actually doing anything wrong. It's brilliant. However, there's a third understanding of ownership, which is a much more fundamental approach to ownership, which is the Jewish approach to ownership. That you actually own your things. That you are fundamentally and halakhically and metaphysically connected to your things. And that ownership is actually real. Now, in order to really understand this, we have to go back to understanding the self, to understanding who you are. If you remember in Sheer number 7, we discussed the concept of self, 
That you are a neshama, you are a consciousness, you are a mind, you are a soul. And that's the innermost level of you. That's who you really are. And your body is an extension of yourself. It is, so to speak, the vessel, the container, which allows you to express yourself out into the world. You use your body, you're not used by your body, you use your body to express yourself and build yourself in the world. And we don't have time to talk about this right now, but your clothes are how you express your body. When people look at you, they don't see your body, your physical body. All they really see about your body is your face. But your clothes are how you present yourself to the world. So your clothes are the next level of extension of yourself. But now we can take it to the next level and understand that your things, your possessions, ownership over your things means that your things are now an extension of you to the next level. So it's you, your soul, your neshama. Next level is your body. The next level is your clothes. And next level is all of your things. But your things are actually the outermost expression of you. They're an extension of you. That you are actually connected to your things. And we're going to talk about in a few minutes how that works, why that works. But for now, it's important to realize that ownership is actually fundamentally metaphysically real. And that your possessions now represent you. And now we can understand the entire world of Kinyanim. What is Kinyanim? If your things are metahalachically and metaphysically and halachically connected to you, then how do Kinyanim work? Kinyanim work by building and breaking halachic and metaphysical connections. Your things are connected to you, and Kinyanim break and build those connections. So, for example, we talked about creating kinyanim, creating ownership. So that would mean creating a halachic and metaphysical connection to an object. So when you do harba or mashicha or chazaka or chalipin or a kinyan suda or situmto or matana or any form of creative kinyan, you are building a halachic and metaphysical connection to that object. So there are also some unique examples of creating a kinyan, which is creating something. When you create a song, or a piece of art, or an idea, or let's say a paper, all those things that you created now become an extension of you. These create a lot of halachic questions. For example, let's say you create something on a land that you don't own. So, Chaimi Brisk talks about the Yushalmi that says that if you work in a field that's hefker, then it becomes yours, because the fact that you created it means that's now yours. But what if you worked on the land and created something on land that wasn't yours? Let's say you planted a seed, your seed, in someone else's field. So this is a fascinating halachic debate because you own the seed, you own the produce, but it was built on his field with his nutrients and his property. So it's a very interesting debate we're not going to go into right now, but definitely you'd have some right to that produce because to some extent you created it, it's yours. Now, we're not going to develop this right now, but there is a fascinating concept of mechila in tzricha kinyan. And if we talked about mechila, which is more of an Ian topic, we're not going to discuss that right now. But why in certain cases, including this case, you don't need a kinyan? And you can somehow get around the need for a kinyan. But now, let's talk about breaking kinyanim. Until now, we talked about creating kinyanim. But what about breaking kinyanim? Breaking kinyanim would mean breaking a halachic and metaphysical connection between you and the object. So, for example, when you're a or something, or you perform siluk, or you perform mechila, 
you're not building a connection between the object to someone else. You're, you're simply severing your connection with the object. So when you're mafia or something, you're simply cutting off your connection with the object. Now someone else can then build the connection with the object, to build the kingdom to that object. But you are simply severing that connection. So what's Hefker based on Hefker? If we realize that ownership is not simply subjective, that you decide to build a connection with it, but it's metahalachic, metaphysical, it's objective then if Bayesden has control over that metaphysical reality, if they have halachic control, they can sever your connection to your objects. So Hefker, Bayesden, Hefker is when Bayesden creates that objective severance between you and your ownership. Now there is a debate in Gitten, the Aflam and Gimel Bayes, to what extent that works. Whether they can only sever the relationship between you and your object, or they can even build and create a connection of ownership to someone else. Now, if you look closely in the Gemara, it's actually based off of the two psukim that the people are arguing over. And one Pasuk is just talking about breaking the connection. The other Pasuk is talking about also creating the connection. But that's a very interesting topic. To what extent Hefker, Beis, and Hefker actually works. But now we can also understand why Kedushin is a Kenyan. If we don't think that Kenyanim are just ownership, but it's a meta-halachic, metaphysical, objective connection to something, when you perform Kedushin, when you're marrying someone, you're building an objective connection to them. When a woman gets married, no one else can now marry her. There's a real meta-halachic, metaphysical, objective reality that has changed. These two people have now become objectively connected. They're melting into a oneness. This woman is now part of you. When you get married, you're now expanding your halachic concept of self. They now become one. But now let's move on to a very interesting topic, which is this partial and unique ownership. Because until now we've established that according to halacha, when you own something, there is an actual objective halachic connection between you and that object. But it's important to realize that we don't disregard that initial first definition of ownership. We don't disregard control. In halacha, control is actually very important. So that brings us to the following question. What if you have halachic ownership over an object, but someone else has control over the object? What if it's the opposite? What if you have control over an object, but someone else has halachic ownership? So for example, let's say an object is stolen. So the Ganev, the stealer, he has rishus, he has control over the object, but the real owner still has halacha connection to the object. Or let's say someone lost an object. So they still have halacha connection to the object, but the finder, the person who found the object, he has rishus, he has control over the object. Or let's say a shomer. The original owner still has halacha connection, but the shomer definitely has control, and the question which you have to ask is how much halachic ownership does the shomer have? So the potential limitations of such ownership will be the question of whether or not you can be mekadesh with it. Can you marry someone with this partial ownership? Or let's say, can you be makadesh something when you only have this partial ownership? Or can you fulfill lachem? On sukkahs, you need lachem, you need to own the bull of an esrog. What if you stole it? Besides for the problem of mitzvah hababavira, would this even fulfill lachem? So it would be fascinating to contemplate how much all these different people own it. For example, when it comes to Shomrim, there's a big discussion about the difference between a Shoel, a Shomer Sacher, a Shomer Chinam, and a Socher. How these are different levels of being a Shomer. That 
a shoel, someone who has use over it, probably has a lot more bilis, a lot more halachic ownership than, let's say, a shomer chinam. And the question is, how much does he own it? And if you look at the Rishonim, you'll see in the spectrum how there are some Rishonim that really think that a Shoel not only has Rishos, control over the object, but even has some degree of halachic ownership. Now let's say a person steals an object. So he has Rishos, he has control, but the other person still has halachic ownership. And if you learn Bab Metziah, what does Yeyush do? Yeyush can sever that halachic connection which would then give the Gav not only control, but also the ability to create a halachic connection to the object. That wouldn't mean that the Gav still doesn't have to pay back, but it would mean that now he does have his own connection to the object. Now the same thing is true when someone finds a lost object. What does the age do? Yeish severs, breaks off the halacha connection between the owner and the object, so now the person that found it not only has rishus, has control over the object, but also now creates a halacha connection to the object. And we're not going to discuss this in great depth now, but if you learn a lot of the sugis of Kinyanim, why does a shinoi, when you do a shinoi maisar, a shinoi shame, why does that sever the relationship between the original owner and the object? So for example, let's say I steal an object from you, but then I change the object so that it no longer has the same shame, the same name, or it no longer looks the same. I fundamentally change the object. Why do I now own it? So you can say that until I changed the object, there was still a halacha connection between the original owner and the object. But once I change the object, the owner is no longer connected to the object because the object is no longer the same. The object has changed, and therefore the connection between the owner and the object has also been severed. And it's also just interesting. Now you can also understand the Gemara Babakama, that quotes the famous machlokas between Rav Yochanan and Rish Lakish. What if someone stole someone's object and both of them now want to be makdish, the stolen object? So according to Yochanan, neither the Ganev nor the original owner can be makdish it. Why? Because you need both. You need halachic ownership and you also need control. The original owner has halachic ownership but he doesn't have control. The Ganev has control but he doesn't have halachic ownership. Reish Lakish thinks that the original owner can be Makdishit. Because what you really need in order to be Makdish something is halachic ownership. And he doesn't think that control is as fundamental. Now before we move on to the much deeper part of this year, I think it's important to lay down a very fundamental principle. Which is that you see time and time again the difference between this Jewish perspective on life and the secular perspective. The secular perspective of ownership is that it's not real. It's just an agreement. There's no objective reality. There's no objective concept of ownership. Remember we talked about Esav. There's no spiritual reality. There's no real objective concepts. So ownership is just practical. But we believe in real ownership. Fundamentally real ownership. Halakhic, metaphysical, objective reality. But you see so many other examples of this as well. So for example, morality. There are many secular philosophers who will claim that there's no such thing as morality. There's no such thing as right and wrong. Yes, it's true, in order for society to function, you can't steal, and you can't rape, and you can't kill. All those things are terrible, but there's no objective right and wrong. You'd have to believe in Hashem. You'd have to believe in the spiritual reality to believe in right and wrong. They just believe that we want to live a nice life. In order for life to function, you can't do certain things. But we believe in a real morality. There is a real right and wrong. Love. If you read scientific literature, they'll tell you that there's no such thing as love. Why do we get married? Why do we live these types of lives? 
Because we're evolved monkeys, we have to keep our species going. It's just an evolutionary advantage to keep us going. Now, of course, if the same scientist got home from his day of work and he found that his wife was being unfaithful to him, he wouldn't say that we're just a bunch of evolved monkeys and that this is just what we do. He'd go crazy. He'd say, I thought we were in love. Because you realize the contradiction. You know love is real. You know love is not something just practical. It's not just a physical relationship. It's an existential and spiritual connection. When two melt into a oneness. But if you're just a secular person, and you don't believe in spirituality, you don't believe in anything beyond the physical, then what's love? It's not a thing. Because everything deeper is beyond things. It's things that you can't see, you can't quantify. Morality, love, they're concepts, they're ideas, they're spiritual, they're not physical. And if we want to connect this idea to Kinyanim, the Rambam explains in the very beginning of Hilchaz Ishus that that's exactly what changed after Mount Torah. That before the Torah was given, before we entered into this halachic reality, where we are actually engaging a spiritual world, marriage was just practical. You just met a girl on the street and you got married to her. But after Ma'an Torah, all of a sudden you have a Kenyan. Kenyan Kedushin was introduced after the Torah was given. And then you have Edei Kiyum, you create a real halachic process because now marriage is not practical. It's not a physical relationship. When you get married, you are actually creating something objective. Metaphysically, your two neshamas melt into a single connected neshama. Two become one, and it's real. It's not that you just go from one minute to another and nothing changes except for now you are married. When you actually get married, halachically, spiritually, metaphysically, things are changing. You are actually entering into a real spiritual connection, a real spiritual relationship. And that's amazing. If you want just another couple examples of this concept, beauty. Beauty is not something physical. You can't explain physically how something's beautiful. It's an inner experience. It's when all these different things melt into oneness. When you look at a beautiful scene, look at a sunset on the beach. It's beautiful. But what's beautiful about it? It's the contrast. It's all these different things melting into this one amazing, beautiful scene. But that's not really something physical. That's an inner experience. Meaning, purpose in life. That's something that's only really there when you believe in a spiritual world. If you believe you're an evolved monkey, then what's the meaning and purpose in your life? There is no meaning. You're an accident. You're not here for a reason. There's no purpose to humanity. So I'm just trying to give you a little bit of an insight into how fundamentally different your life becomes when you believe in a spiritual reality because then this entire world opens up. So what I'd like to do now is to try to develop a much deeper understanding of why your possessions, why your things, are an actual aspect and extension of yourself. Until now, we've developed a much deeper understanding of ownership, that there is an actual halachic and metaphysical connection between you and your things. But I'd like to start delving a little deeper in understanding why your things are actually considered to be an extension of you. When you are born, you have infinite potential. We've discussed this in great depth. If you go back to sheer number four, we talked a lot about potential. But when you're born, you have infinite potential. And let's say you live for 120 years. So you have 120 years of time. Now, we introduced the sheer with talking about the importance of time. But now think about your life right now. 120 years of time, you get to choose how to use that time. It's a finite amount of time, but that time represents the means that you can now use in order to actualize your potential.
And you are now going through life and choosing how you use that time. So how you use your time is how you actualize your potential, how you choose to manifest yourself in the world. And if you look at your past and everything you are up until now, it's what you've become from your use of your time. Now, there are many different ways that you can use that time. So, for example, you can develop your mind, develop your das, develop your understanding of life. That's developing your mind. You can develop your midos, developing your character and how you interact with everybody else. You can develop your relationships with Hashem, with your family and friends, with yourself. Perhaps most important, perhaps the starting point. It all stems from the self. But you get to choose how you are developing in your life. And that's the use of time. When you realize how valuable time is. How every moment of life is like a million dollars that you get to choose how to spend. But you never get that moment back. That's why stealing sleep is one of the worst forms of gazela. Because you can never return it. Because a moment of time can never be given back. Which is why time is infinitely valuable. But there are other things that you need to use your time for. For example, developing your body, eating healthy, exercising. This is fundamental. It's so important. It's not the point of life. It's not the ultimate goal. But if your body isn't healthy, you're not going to be able to really focus on what's important in life. So it's a means to enable you to do what you're actually here to do. And that's why the Rambam in Hilchus Deus, as well as the Ramchal, explains that anything that you do which enables you to fulfill your purpose, to become the best Eved Hashem you can be, that itself becomes a mitzvah. Because it becomes part of the process of helping you accomplish your purpose. Of helping you, you know, do mitzvahs and learn Torah and become and grow. This is just another example of Iker and Tafel. When the Tafel becomes part of the Iker. Where the Iker is the focus and the Tafel enables the Iker and therefore becomes part of the Iker. But beyond developing your body and eating healthy, exercising, sleeping enough, what about developing your things, developing your possessions? Now, your things and possessions are also important. They're not the purpose of life, but they are a means to enable you. And therefore, when you use your things properly, they can also become uplifted. And if you go back to Shir number four, we discussed there in great depth how to approach potential, how to maximize and actualize potential in the proper way. But the point I want to bring out here is that your things become an expression of you, an aspect of how you actualize your potential, meaning that you have time, and if you used your time to create ownership, to let's say earn money and then you bought something, that thing, everything you own, every aspect of your life represents how you chose to use your time. How you chose to use your potential. And therefore, your things become actualized potential and therefore become an extension of you. So, for example, all the knowledge you've accumulated is now a representation of what you've become in this life. But the same thing is true for your money and for your things. It becomes an extension of you, an expansion of you as to what you've accomplished and accumulated during your life. Now, I'm not saying this should be the focus of your life. It shouldn't be. But it is important to realize that your objects, your things, things that you own, are actually part of you. They're how you decide to manifest yourself in the world, how you chose to use your time. I'll give you just a wonderful proof, a wonderful example of this. There's a very important principle when it comes to supporting Torah with your money. 
And the principle is that it's as if you yourself learned. And the question is why. I'll give you just one example where this really comes to life. The first Tchiyas HaMesim, the first stage of Tchiyas HaMesim, only certain people are going to be revived. For example, people who long to see Yerushalayim built, people who long for Mashiach to come, those people will be revived when, when the Mashiach comes. Those people will be revived in the first stage of Tchiyas HaMesim. Hashem gave them the schos of coming back to see it happen because they so longed for it. But there is another category of people who come back, which is people who have devoted their lives to Torah. And why this happens is a very deep topic. It really gets into the fact that Torah is the do, the tal of Tchiyas HaMesim. It's the tal shel Tchiyah. But we're not going to really develop this right now. But the point is that people who have devoted their lives to Torah, they'll come back for that first stage of Tchiyas HaMesim. But there's another category of people who come back, and that's people who facilitated and supported Torah which means that people only learn Torah because of them. So let's say someone supported Torah financially and supported someone in learning that only because of him, this person was able to learn. Or let's say a wife, that because of her, her husband was able to learn Torah. The person who supported and facilitated will join the people who actually devote their lives to Torah in that first stage of Tchiyas HaMesim. Now the question is why they didn't learn Torah. But the answer is so beautiful. Both of those people, the people that learned Torah and the people that facilitated Torah, they both had time. They both had potential and had the choice of how to use their time and potential. Now the person who learned Torah decided to learn Torah. But he used his time to learn Torah. However, if you look at the other person, he also used his time, but he used it to make money. But it was only because of the person who made money's time, it was only because of his money that the person who learned Torah had the ability to learn Torah. So it's only because of both of them that the Torah was able to be learned. And therefore, they both are responsible for this learning Torah. Now, I will tell you 100%, it's not the same. To learn the Torah yourself is completely different than facilitating. But they both brought it into the world. They're both responsible for it. And therefore they both get to earn the reward and enjoyment of the fact that it was done. There's another Indian that someone who supports Torah gets to share the enjoyment of Haba because it's the same idea that when you are using your time and potential to create Torah in the world, then it's part of you. How you choose to use your time becomes an extension of you. The money and the things that you build in the world also become an extension of you, and now it becomes an asset that you can choose how to use it. When you choose to use that money to support Torah, it's as if you spent that original time used to make that money in order to learn Torah. Because your time now was used to bring that Torah into the world. It's a beautiful, beautiful topic. But the real point I want to bring out is that your things are actually an extension of you. And how you choose to use your time in life now becomes the expression of you in the world. And now we can finally understand why Yahweh went back and risked his life for the Pacham Kitanim. What was the purpose? Why would a Talmud Chacham at Tzaddik risk his life for his possessions? Why? Because your possessions are an aspect of your life. They're an aspect of you. Yaakov used everything in his life to serve Hashem. But his possessions are an aspect of him. They're an aspect of his actualized potential. You don't waste anything in your life. You devote everything in your life to purpose. And everything in life becomes part of something bigger. That's Emes. Emes was when you use everything in your life to serve Hashem. 
When you serve Hashem to the max, that means every aspect of your life, all the talents you have, every aspect of your potential is used for that one purpose. That's living a life of Emes. And Emes Yaakov. Yaakov represents Emes. So, so Yaakov used every aspect of himself to serve Hashem. Even Pachim Ketan, even little tiny vessels, they're an aspect of Yaakov's life, and they have to be used properly. So Yaakov went back to get them. Yes, he risked something, but it was important. And Yaakov represents the concept of never wasting any potential. That's why Rashi quotes the famous Medrash, that lo ra'ah kari biyamav, that Yaakov never wasted any seed in his life, that Ruvain was the racious onah, the first drop of seed, that Yaakov never wasted any seed. Now the deeper idea is that Yaakov never wasted any seed. Remember we talked about in Shir number four, how seed, zera, always represents potential. That Yaakov didn't waste any potential, never wasting any moment in life, never wasting words. The Zohar talks about wasting words as wasting seed. That you shouldn't waste words. Don't waste any aspect of your life, any aspect of energy, of seed. You're taking advantage of every aspect of your life. That's what Yaakov represents. Taking advantage of everything, not wasting anything. Yaakov applied the same principle to his possessions. None of his potential could be lost. And his possessions represent an aspect of his life, an aspect of his potential, an aspect of his actualized potential, and he couldn't let that be lost. So it's a fascinating principle in life to take advantage of all aspects of us and to devote all aspects of us to purpose in Takash Baruch Now just one very important qualification. You have to realize the proper hierarchy when it comes to these things. The proper hierarchy when it comes to the self and your possessions, the Iker and the Tafel. You are not your possessions. Yes, your possessions are an aspect of you, but you're much more than that. I'll give you a beautiful example. In English, people say, mine. That's mine. That's my thing. People associate themselves with their things. Now, it's a big problem psychologically that people actually have their self-worth based on their things. So they think they're only valuable if they have expensive cars or fancy houses, etc., etc. But people associate themselves with their things. They say, it's mine. In Hebrew, you can't say that. You can't say it's mine. All you can say is yesh li. There is to me, meaning there is in relationship to me. I am not my things. I am much more than my things. I'm a neshama. I have a body. I have things. But the things are not me. Now, what I want to really establish today is that your things are an extension of you. But you have to realize the hierarchy that you are way beyond your things. And that your things are there to be used to help you become you. That you have a purpose in life, and your real atafkid is building that inner world, building yourself, and building the world, expanding outwards. But not the things themselves. The things are means. They're meant to be used to help you build yourself, build that world. But they shouldn't be an ends in themselves. Now, one last thing before we end. It's a very important question to ask yourself. Can you do whatever you want with your things? Is your, are your things just yours to do whatever you want with? Well, if you think ownership doesn't really exist, and it's all about control or societal agreement, like the first two modes of ownership, then of course you can. There's no such thing as ownership. You can do whatever you want. But if you think ownership is halachic, and your things are an actual extension of you, and to take it a step further, your things are a representation of your potential, and how you spent your time in life, and they are a reflection and manifestation of you in the world, then of course you can't do whatever you want with it. If you really want to take this to the next level, there's really a hierarchy. 
When it comes to your life, you can't do whatever you want with your life. You can't take your own life. You can't commit suicide. In the medical halacha, we're going to give a whole sheer series on suicide. You can't do it. Now, are there exceptions? Of course there are exceptions. But they're very rare, and we're very strict and very machmir that you can't commit suicide. You can't do whatever you want with your own life. But what about your body? So you're also not allowed to injure your body. There's an isra of chavala. You're not allowed to injure yourself. You don't own your body. Or more makeable when it comes to your body. For its sarkadal, you are allowed to injure yourself. So for example, let's say you need to go under surgery. That's an issue, you're cutting open your body. But for its sarkadal, you're allowed to injure yourself. You're allowed to undergo some sort of chavala. But what about your things? So this is also an aspect of yourself. And we're more makeable because it's more removed from your actual life. But there's an issue of baltashchis. You're not allowed to destroy your things for no reason. Now, we're more makel when it comes to your things than suicide or chavala. So, for example, for any benefit, you are allowed to, so to speak, destroy your things. So, let's say to burn clothes for a fire, for something productive, you are allowed to. But still, your things are an aspect of yourself, and you're not allowed to simply do whatever you want with them. You can't waste and you can't destroy them. Now, I wanted to show you the hierarchy, that there is a hierarchy of you yourself, then your body, and then your things. But these are all aspects of you. And it's important to realize that because then you give chashivas to all aspects of you. So now let's go back and answer all of our original questions. In regards to how to understand ownership, we established the first two more practical approaches that ownership is control or there's no such thing as ownership but it's a societal agreement. But then we established a third and more fundamental and Jewish approach to ownership which is that ownership is real. That your things are an actual extension of you. And that there is a halachic and metaphysical connection between you and your things. Now we qualified that statement with the important principle that you are not your things. That there is a hierarchy. That you are beyond your things. That you can't say that your things are yours. You can't say it's mine. You can't say that I am my things. All you can say in Hebrew is yeshli, there is to me, meaning that you are still beyond your things. Even though they are an extension of you, they are not you yourself. So now let's try to go back and understand all the original questions we started out this year with. If you want to understand the sugya of stealing in order to save your life on a much deeper level, I gave two shirim on it in the medical halacha chabur series. But very briefly, part of the sugya of understanding the havamin, or at least why according to some, there would be at least some reason why you wouldn't be able to steal something in order to save your life, is because stealing could be an avizraya or an aspect of murder, of retzicha. Because if I believe killing someone is when I take their life, then stealing from them also represents taking an aspect of their life. Because if we realize that your things are an aspect of you, they're an aspect of your potential which was actualized, then when I steal from you, I'm ripping a part of you away. And even though we don't paskin that you're not allowed to steal to save your life, there is some svara and there are some opinions that you aren't allowed to steal in order to save your life. Even though it's not really murder, it's still some form of ripping a part of a person away. And now we can also understand why a chamsan is considered to be a ganav. Because stealing is when you rip a part of a person away. And even though a chamsan does pay for what he's taking, he is still taking, by force, something which doesn't belong to him. But more importantly, that thing was an aspect of the person he's taking it from. So even if you paid money, it doesn't matter. 
you're still ripping apart a piece of the person. The ownership is not simply practical. It's not like you have liquid assets. Your things are an aspect of you, and even if you are paying back the worth and the value, you're still ripping a part of a person away from him. And that's why Hamsun still is a form of Geneva. And now we can also understand the opinion of Baba Kama that when something you own damages, it's as if you damaged. Why? Because your things are an extension of you. And when something that you own does damage, it's as if you did damage. Maybe it's not the same exact thing, but it's considered that you actually are a mazik, that you've damaged. And the last step is realizing how, according to the Ramban, when you bring a carbon, it's as if you yourself were on the Mizbeach. How is your animal a replacement for you? If you should be the carbon, how does it make any sense that you're sure that your cow, that's something you own, an animal, how does that make sense to be a replacement? But now it's so clear, because your animal is an extension of you. And when you bring your animal on the Mizbeach, you're bringing an aspect of you onto the Mizbeach. You're sacrificing an aspect of yourself. And to take it a step deeper, when you sin, you're saying, I was acting like an animal. I wasn't being my higher self. And when you bring an animal on the Mizbeach, you are sacrificing and getting rid of that animalistic aspect of yourself. Now there's much more we can go on. All of these were huge topics which we tried to really just develop very well, but very briefly. But the real purpose of the shir is to take a step back and realize how everything is much deeper than it seems. And how ownership is not just simply, okay, you own it, but it's very deep that your things are an aspect of yourself. And how you choose to go about life is absolutely important because everything in your life is based on how you chose to use your time. And like I started off this year, we have to take a step back and ask ourselves, what are we doing with our time? Who are we becoming? I'll tell you a little secret. Nobody gets out of this world alive. We're all going to die. You have to come to face with it. You have to acknowledge it, confront it. People who ignore the fact that they're going to die, they simply live in this fantasy that they're going to live forever. But when you're going to live forever, there's no reason to really take advantage of every moment. But when you come to face with the fact that I have a limited amount of time and I have all this potential and I have so much I want to become, you start really taking advantage of time. You live with passion, you live with purpose, and you live an inspired life. And you learn and develop your relationship with Hashem, you learn so much Torah, you develop your relationships, you develop your midos, you develop your health, you develop all aspects of yourself. What I'd like to end off with is just one question for you to ask yourself. How can I use my time a little better? What can I do with my time? Many people just look at their past and are convinced that what they've done in the past will be their future. They hold themselves back on what they can do with their lives because they look at their past mistakes or their past failures and they see that's the way it's always going to be. But one of my favorite sayings is that history is being read, but it's also being written. That you can't look back and say, if it was, it will be. That sometimes in life you have to just believe in the future. Believe in what can be. And don't say, I used to do this or I've always done this, so therefore that's the way it's always going to be. The most fundamental difference between human beings and everyone else, between animals and inanimate objects, between malachim, is that we have the ability to change. We have free will. We can choose to be better today than we were yesterday. 
We can choose to develop our midos, to develop our minds, to develop a better version of ourselves. And my hope is that from all these ideas which we've shared today, that we also choose to now use our time in a better way.